everyone, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. So, works of fiction, they are rarely confined to a single genre, especially when it comes to speculative fiction. There are sci-fi westerns, historical fantasies, and comedy horrors. And many science fiction, fantasy, and horror novels use mystery as a subgenre, from China Mieville's The City and the City to Jasper Ford's The Air Affair. So mysteries can take many forms, from the downtrodden private eye of the noir persuasion to an amnesiac trying to piece their life back together. Whether it's unraveling a conspiracy or finding answers about their own lives, mysteries can be an excellent tool uh, for hooking the reader and for pushing a protagonist along on their own journey. When it comes to exploring mysteries, is there any difference between our Poirots and our Miss Marples? Do men and women approach solving conspiracies in different ways? After all, this wouldn't be breaking the glass slipper panel without a certain gender preoccupation. So today, we have Claire North and RJ Barker with us. Both include mysteries within their novels, but in very different ways. <laughs> so guys, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you use the elements of mystery in your work. It looks like RJ is nominated to go first. <laughs> um, I'm RJ Barker. I'm the author of the Wounded Kingdom trilogy, which are Age of Assassins, Blood of Assassins and King of Assassins, and I have to think about it or I say them in the wrong order. Um, and they're a trilogy, which I mean, they tell a story over a trilogy, but they're also three standalone sort of murder mysteries, slightly less for the third one, but that about Girton Clubfoot, who is a, a disabled assassin. It sounds quite silly when I say it out loud. It works! <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm Claire North, I'm also Catherine Webb and Kate Griffin, not in that order. Um, I've written a lot of books um, and I'm getting old. Uh, my latest book is called 84K. It's miserable, but you should all go and buy a copy. Um, and in as much as there is problems to be solved and questions to be untangled, I think probably a great deal of my books use mystery and 84K is no different in that regard. Don't, don't say you're old. <laughs> <laughs> you're I'll, I'll, I'll see you, mate. I'm getting there. But I think, it, like, I think a lot of what I've written has used mystery. I think most writers find at some point it's really useful to have that tool of here is a problem, let's solve it. Even in kind of romance novels, there's a question of, oh, who did Mr. Darcy look at? Is he actually trying to snog that person over there? The, the tool of even the most basic questions, the most basic mysteries, can always be used to drive a story forward, whatever that story is. And so I think you can look at it across so many genres and say, this is really useful. Well, yeah. I mean, that was kind <laughs> of like, you just sort of took the words out of my mouth. Sorry. I was going to ask you why these are so important, you know, like, and, and why the, the human psyche, just why we want to unravel mysteries. And because even in our own lives, I think, or at least I know people who like to create drama, um, there's one over there, um, and, and we love to sort of see what's going on, that there must be something underneath, you know, what are, what are we... We like order as creatures, we, order. we like order, yeah, we like things to, to work out, we like to know the answers and, and how they work out, and I think the sort of pure murder mystery sort of provides that in a, in a very pleasing way, that there, there is chaos and disorder, somebody's killed and that's all wrong, and then somebody comes and, and sorts everything out, and also, generally, in the ones that I like, like Agatha Christie, the that you get to nose it into people's life and find out actually they're all terrible uh, and it makes you feel quite <laughs> lovely. 
I think there is an element of we want to solve things simply. The history of storytelling is usually the history of taking big, complicated ideas and condensing them down to, and this was good and this was bad. And actually, a lot of our actual study of academic history is let's take a big idea and condense it down to good guys, bad guys. Society likes to do that. Politics loves to do that. Um, and so in that sense, having a question and then answering it is one of the most satisfying tools for kind of saying who we are. I mean, stories say who we are as much as anything else, but being able to come down on the side of an argument and say, I'm the person who did this at this time and I was right, is the most satisfying human experience there is. I think in stories, however, there can sometimes be a more complicated version of that, which is that, yeah, you can solve the mystery, you can answer the crime, but again, like Agatha Christie, sometimes you turn around and go, well, everyone was terrible, and actually the person who died probably deserved to go. <laughs> in which case, what you tend to be solving is less the whodunit in the locked room, but that kind of emotional mystery of why did this happen? What was the human story going on? What was the emotional narrative behind this event? Which I think is sometimes even more satisfying than the black and the white and the locked room. It depends which story you're reading at the time. Well, I was thinking about it in relation to your comment about society. And I was thinking that if you think about a horror novel, you break that down to an essence of just survival. And that is what you're focusing on. But if you think about mysteries, being able to cook and eat and escape predators is what helps us survive. But Exploring mysteries is what helps us advance. If you take it down to a really basic level, it's what takes us that a little bit further. It just makes that life a little bit better. And you were talking about um, the person who died deserved to go. It occurred to me what RJ said, that it's, it's about justice as well. I mean, how much justice do we really see in this world? But in a book, you've got a mystery, something is solved and it's completed, and you feel better about the world in general, even when you go outside and see something really, you know, really terrible that you can't, can't affect. I suppose the, on the thing of horror, though, it's interesting because a lot of horror books, kind of, you get the post-apocalyptic book, sometimes you don't even bother to ask why this has happened. You get a lot of the kind of we're foraging for dog meat in a ravaged society. At no point will a book necessarily stop and explain why that's happened, and we're okay with that. We're okay with there being certain mysteries that we just let go because it's not emotionally relevant to what's going on. You could argue organised religion has played on that one quite nicely. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. it. It is uniquely human. You can't have a lion murder mystery. Sort of who killed a gazelle? That was Sheila, because she was her movie. <laughs> 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 it, 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 it is, a, it is a, a very human thing. We, we need that kind of... We have reasons for doing things that maybe don't make as much sense. Fun fact, yeah. koala fingerprints can be mistaken for human fingerprints. Take that, run with it. I wait for your submissions. <laughs> If you're planning murder, always have a koala with you. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I've noticed with uh, both of your writing, so Claire, you tend to use mystery as kind of a way to unravel the more speculative fiction elements, whereas for you, RJ, like the, the mystery is separate to sort of the, the figuring out the, the magic of the world. The magic of the world happens separate to that mystery. And I just wondered, you know, why do you think maybe you approach it that way or why speculative fiction particularly allows for mystery or, you know, as a good way to explain the speculative elements? I think... Oh, God, thinking, that's not my strong point. <laughs> um, I think magic in itself is a mystery and um, the, the reason I wrote the first book is that the mystery revolves around magic and when you take magic out, the first book falls apart. Because um, it is, and I, I, I liked that. It's kind of a mystery 
within a mystery. And I think that's what, what sort of approached it to me. And um, there's a scene in the first book where, where the, it's a literal Agatha Christie, get everybody together into a room, and they go, and this is how it was done, and it was you. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, that's the reason I wrote the book. I just wanted to write. That came into my head. All the other stuff comes later as you're writing it, kind of the mystery of the, the people. And, and for any, any murder mystery, you, you have to care, you have to set up reasons, and I like that because it, it gives you a reason to explore people and who they are and why they are. Because you, you, you're trying to, I'm trying to make you look, look over there while this thing is happening. And it's very easy to distract me by making people do interesting things. In a fantasy world, there's lots of room to do interesting and new things as well. Um, I'm very bad at writing the beginning of a book and I'm very bad at plotting. So I tend to use mystery as a tool for bypassing the first 10,000 words anyway and just throwing people into the deep end. Um, because I, I, there's that beginning of a, particularly in fantasy and speculative fiction and science fiction, there's that first 10,000 words where you find yourself in danger of going, okay, there's a spaceship, it's going through space and it's using a warp drive. Oh, that's faster than light. Uh, hold on, let me explain the warp drive. So they've got this warp drive and it's faster than light and there's this guy in suspension. I should explain why they're in unmade. Okay, hold on, let me explain why. So they're going this place and before you know it, you're already somewhat dozing off. I mean, it's great, it can be great, it can be done brilliantly, but I'm really crap at doing that well. Um, so I tend to open a book by jumping someone in with a cry of, everything is broken, the suspended animation chamber is open, the engine is burnt out, you're in trouble, here's page one. And then the mystery element for me is a tool for working out the questions of how and why we got here in the process of telling that story, rather than having to set up context, because I'm really weak at setting up context. Um, so I think I might just be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Mysteries are a really good way of generating plot as well. In that you, you're writing and you, you need to make an answer. You think, oh, right, I, I need people to think this person did this thing and I'm a bit stuck, so I'll just go and do that now. Um, and then you write that bit and that asks small questions. And I'm writing something now that isn't a mystery and it doesn't make you ask questions of the characters in the same way. And plotting's much harder, I found, when you have to just do a story. <laughs> I don't like it. I'm going to have to work. It's awful. Well, um, since we're talking about plotting, um, which is obviously a fairly important part of um, you know, setting up a mystery and then being able to unravel it page by page, um, convoluted mysteries, they often require significant planning uh, before you know, sitting down to write. So do you find that you need to plan for this element uh, more if you're writing speculative fiction? Um, or uh, you know, do, you, do you do the mystery first? Do you then come up with the characters? Or do the characters walk onto the page before the mystery kind of has to unravel itself? I mean, the character's the most important thing. Um, character for me, because I'm writing um, these, the Wounded Kingdom books are written in first person, so he has to be fully realised because he's, he's explaining to you, and of course you, you use that to hide things from the readers, so to know um, how he sees the world and how he sees people. Like, there's, there's a very black and white way of seeing good and evil in the first book because he's 15 and emotionally mature. So he, he's just like, well, you're bad. Um, <laughs> and and he, he's blind to a lot of subtleties. And in the second book, he's also kind of, he's angry and he's still blind to a lot of, of the subtleties. So that, and that part of his character is used to distract the reader and, and send the reader off in other directions, hopefully. Hopefully not, because if you've solved it in the first chapter, that you'd be a bit bored for the rest of the book, to be honest with you. Um, but I don't do any planning 
um, apart from knowing the end. That that's wow. all of my planning, um, because I I I get bored if I know what I'm doing. I like to, <laughs> I like to be surprised. There's a thing that happens at the beginning of the second book that wasn't that I just oh that was quite fun, wasn't it? I'll carry on with that. <laughs> and then when I wrote the third book, that I wrote one sentence that if I'd done any planning at all would have broken the entire book. <laughs> so so it, what I've basically taught myself is that planning is bad. Don't do it. But do you ever get do you ever tie yourself in knots when creating a sort of mystery that you have to solve if you've not planned out? I don't know, it hints things where you sort of pick up on clues or anything like that? Do you... No, no, that's the fun bit. <laughs> when you hit, hit something, you think, oh gosh. How... And I, I often find, um, I describe it as being just an incredibly lazy writer, that I, I just let my subconscious do stuff. That I'll, I'll be writing something and think, oh, oh gosh, we, we need the goat sword of massive donkeys. Uh, and without that, this isn't going to work. Um, so I put a note in the side and it just says, write from here as if we have the goat sort of massive donkeys and fix it later. And I write on. <laughs> as if I've, I've been very clever. But I'll often find I'll go back and I'll find I've actually done it somewhere. Uh, and I think, oh. And I think it, my subconscious is kind of looking after me because I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I say, well, here's these things that you need. And there's sort of a... I always find with a book there's kind of a... A, a critical mass point where I suddenly find all these things that I've done because I thought they might be fun just suddenly mesh and I, I realise oh oh gosh that's that's what I was doing and and, it, and it's kind of lovely I would not recommend trying it <laughs> <laughs> I wrote for 16 years and I learned five dollars in that time so it, it's not quick but it, it seems I, I'm, I'm knackered the minute somebody says, well, we need you to go back and really think about this. I'm just like, Whoa. I feel so like you, we should ask Kat, you know, to defend planning. Since <laughs> 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 so RJ's totally crucified it. You did say earlier that you're terrible at plotting, so I'm, I'm I am curious. terrible at plotting. I will, however, defend it to the hilt, um, because I think people who are good at plotting write better books than I do. Like, I am happy to defend planning to the hilt. I think... There's lots of different parts to it. Firstly, I think if you can plan a mystery, if you have that skill, and I've tried it and I often will plan and then break my own rules because, like RJ, I tend to follow where the character needs to go emotionally. And that matters more than a plot for me. So long as you're telling a humane, internally self-consistent story, the plot should bend according to that requirement. But if you've worked out the plot in advance, the odds are you'll be able to tell that story better anyway. So I'm happy to defend planning. I'm also happy to defend planning in as much as you can often read a book where you get to page 87 and someone goes, incidentally, have you seen the giant goat sword? And they go, oh yeah, I left it in the cupboard. And they mentioned 200 more pages. And they're going, that goat sword, it's gonna come back. You can feel where something has been. Is it Chekhov's goat sword? <laughs> you can feel where something's been edited. You can feel that moment where someone's gone, hey, incidentally, I've got a new kind of my bed. That won't be relevant, will it? Like, mm. So I think having a plan allows you to actually disguise the stuff with far more nuance, far better. So when that happens to the reader, they've caught it, but they're not going, yeah, seeing what you're doing there. The story should carry you on and knowing what you're doing with it is the key to that. I also think that in SF fantasy, it's easy to start breaking your own rules a little bit. I think the most obvious example of this was kind of Doctor Who in recent years. Although Lady Doctor! Anyway, um, <laughs> I think with Doctor Who there's, and indeed you can argue with things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with Star Trek, with anything that has a 45 minute format, you get to the 40th minute and tension is wrapped, and tension is wrapped, and tension is wrapped, and they go, oh my god, the tension is so high we can't possibly solve this. Hey! I found a spell. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, that right 
there was a failure of plotting. You, you, really, you amped up your tension, but you didn't quite know how to solve this in the time. And planning out in advance allows you to maintain that internal consistency, because there is nothing quite as annoying as when you get to something, you're like, oh my god, it's so tense, who did the kick? Oh, it's that. <laughs> and you saw it coming. So I'm happy to sit here and defend people who have the craft. And craft is a really important word that we don't give enough kudos to, to really sit and plan. I wing it. RJ wings it. We are wrong. People who learn craft are better. <laughs> it is an exercise in terror, because you're, you're kind of, I'm always writing thinking, well, what, if, what if it doesn't all come together at some point? I, I, don't, I don't know what I'll do. I'll just sit there looking at it, going, oh. ring up my editor and go, you know that book you wanted? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got this vision of you writing like an epic tome of one story as everybody just keeps going round and round trying to get to the point where you wanted to be. I, I did, I was taught a very good lesson about planning when I wrote Blood of Assassins, the second one. Um, they do a special edition and my friend Tom did a map for it. It's a beautiful thing and he said to me, RJ, you are going to have to go through your book and write a map for me that I can then use. And when I did it, this is radio, it's not going to work, but I'll try and explain it. When I actually worked out where my characters went on their journey through the book, what they did was they made a journey of about a mile backwards and forwards <laughs> all the way through the book, which of course didn't work at all, so, so maybe do a little bit of planning. <laughs> I wanted to pick up what RJ said about I know the ending, as in I know where it's going. So what do you know about your ending? Do you have the, the big scene in your head where they're all gathered and they point out which one it is? you know who it is? is for it, for yeah. the first one, I had that scene in my head, and that was why I wanted to write it, because I love stuff like that. Um, for the other two, I, I knew who had done it and why. And I, d I, don't, I don't know whether Claire, Claire will agree. Um, she might tell me I'm wrong again. <laughs> um, if, if you don't know who did it, then you, you're kind of you're just making things up. But if you do know who did it, then you can avoid that. And, and, and there's... Kind of, I've just had a different thought, and, and that's uh, the, the, the thing. The thing with the first book is that I obey the co kind of classical Agatha Christie rules, and if you've not read the book and you're likely to close your ears because it spoils it, um, of who did it, it's the least likely person, um, which I quite liked, and it's very classic Agatha Christie. And then for the other ones, I, I did it a different way, where it's more sort of thrillery. But um, yeah, I. I Think I'm just rambling, aren't I? Just saying words. Yeah, I think you have to know who did it, otherwise a mystery can't work. Because it's yeah. all wrapped around. That's like the central stick that you wrap all the other stuff around. Do you agree, Claire? Yes. <laughs> I think it depends on again how you write. There's a lot of people kind of say this is how you have to write a book. It works differently. Mm -hmm. Well, I've just defended plotting. We also sat at a table with two people who are not very good at plotting. Mm -hmm. There's no hard and fast rule on how to no. write a book. And I know a lot of crime writers who will write the book, get to the end scene, say who the murderer is, then go back and put in the required clues <laughs> to make sure that happens. Um, which, again, if you can do it, works. A lot of the time it doesn't work. It's like, ah, magic goat sword. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's a craft. And so I think it depends on the story you're telling and how you want to tell it. Um, I usually know what the emotional payoff is. And often that involves killing people, probably. But I'm, I'm working towards how far down can I break a character? How far down can I break a world? Can I break an idea? What's the rock bottom I can take it to? And then how do I rebuild that if I want to? Which can involve killing people en masse, or not. 
Um, Charlotte, you were talking about the other day um, when you were crafting your own stories, you were saying that you kind of like, you lay out the clues. Yes. Which is another way of doing it, I suppose. Kind of. Well, I've ghostwritten cosy mysteries and romance as well. And so what I tend to do is I tend to write down the clues that I need my detectives or my heroine to find and I spread them out and then I slot scenes in between. Um, and if it's um, romance, I slot in sexy scenes in between as well. <laughs> but when I was writing a cosy mystery, I was asked that I had to have it with two. I had to have two protagonists both working together. And so I not only had to write out the clues, I had to colour code it and stand back and make sure that there wasn't a dump of green where one character did everything and a dump of blue or whatever. And that also they got together and actually told each other what they knew. And it was absolutely bloody exhausting. <laughs> I don't know if it was any better than your way, but, um, but for me, I had to know what was going on because I had so many threads um, interconnecting. And one of my friends who is in here who um, wrote erotica, and I know that she said that sometimes you get so busy writing plots, you forget to put the sex in. And I kind of had that thing as well. I was so was he trying to fix, fix the mystery? I was like, oh no, but they haven't actually gone out for a drink or had any interaction. And it's like, I've got to slot a few more bits in as well. Claire, your stuff tends to be, well, stuff I've read is quite non-linear. It's very structurally, not all over the place because it's very you know, thought out, but it's certainly not a linear, ordinary structure for a novel. I mean, does that make it harder? I can't imagine, especially now that you're telling me that you're not really a plotter, I cannot imagine how you would go about writing something that's a, kind of a, a mystery conspiracy that is also non-linear and told from multiple perspectives. And I have a lot of uh, awe right now. That's, that's very <laughs> kind and, and wrong, but thank you. <laughs> um, I tend to go non-linear, non again, if we're kind of talking about mystery, because I like not trusting my characters. I, I, again, for me, it's about the emotional destination we're heading towards. It's about how much can I destroy this world and kick it when it's down. And if I don't trust the people telling the story, and if I don't think they're reliable, that also adds an element of mystery. I can start putting in things that contradict them. The mystery becomes, why is my narrator lying? Why is this story being told in this way? Um, I also like to tell a lot non-linear story, because often the way in which it's being told reflects the emotion the teller is going through. If someone just rocks up to you and goes, well, I killed them and I was wrong, then emotionally they've already done a lot of the legwork for you. Whereas if they turn up and go, so there was this thing, but let me explain because there's a reason why this thing happened. It wasn't that bad really and I feel a little bit conflicted about it, but it'll be fine. Then actually you've got this emotional mystery to untangle. You've got this great big knot of why is this person going down this road to untangle, which you don't necessarily have to tell in a temporary way. You don't have to tell from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You can tell a bit of Wednesday when they're happy to talk about Wednesday and a bit of Monday when they're happy to talk about that. And I find that emotionally much more interesting. Do you write it non-linearly? Yes. Yeah, I always write it in the story in the order of how a character feels about it at the time rather than in terms of what event happened when. Um, because again, I feel that when you're telling a story, that, that there are many, many reasons to tell a story. You can tell a story because you just love having a great book. You just love entertainment. I love entertainment. I love picking up a great bit of Pulp Fiction and going, this is awesome. This is badass awesome. I'm having a wonderful time. My train journey has just got better. And we sometimes don't take that seriously. We don't regard that as really important and valid. And it's so important and valid. Sometimes you pick up a book because you want your ideas to be expanded, your horizons to be expanded. But in all these books, no matter why you're picking up a book, to learn something, to hear new voices, ultimately what you're doing is connecting with another human being. 
you're connecting with characters or you're connecting with writers. You're connecting with people you haven't met, people who might not even be real, but you are having an emotional connection with them. Whether you mean it or not, you're having an empathetic experience. Even with a Chris Ryan novel, as they're going through that desert shooting those camels, there is a degree of emotional connection, otherwise you probably wouldn't be reading it. And that, for me, is the most interesting and exciting and important thing, and that, I think, is why we read and why people write, ultimately, as well as for the awesome. <laughs> do you think it's more think, natural for us to do that? You know, like even you're talking about, oh, I'll, I'll talk about Monday you, when I feel like it, or I'll talk about Wednesday when I feel like it. You know, because the way that we live our lives and the way that we uh, talk about events that happened, we, we aren't linear creatures by nature. I don't think we are. And also, if you, you listen to someone telling you a really awkward story, well, Bob and me broke up and it's his fault. That will be day one. Five days later, when they've had the vodka and they're sitting in the pub just pouring with tears, like, I'm first, I told him he was a bastard. <laughs> and then I decided to throw out all his books. And, and it takes a while for the story to actually unravel because we don't, we don't say the truth necessarily either about what we feel or who we are first up, particularly because we're British in this room. But we, <laughs> most apologies. It takes often getting to 2am and being really drunk before we actually dare to make ourselves vulnerable. And uh, again, stories, I think, make us vulnerable. I think a detective is a good way into a society as well, um, if that makes sense. It, they're, they're outsider figures. Like, Gurton is very much, he, he's not of the world, he, well, he is of the world, but he's not of that society. So he comes into it, and to solve these mysteries, he has to learn about it. So it's, it's a really easy way of telling the reader all the things they need to know without sort of just giving them all this information and describing the beautiful mountains that are over the hills and where the dragons live and there's a forest and blah, blah, blah. You, you're sort of seeing it with him and I think that's, that's really, I like that about detective. That they're, they're kind of, they're breaking into a, a society. They also are forced to look at them mean streets mm. with as unbiased an eye as you possibly can. You know, your, your princess or your, your barista, whoever your narrator is, is going to be looking at a story from a certain narrative angle. A detective, a cop, someone solving a mystery is desperately trying to unpiece the lies that are told to see what's going on with clarity. And that's also a really interesting way of looking at the world. And I'm, I'm fascinated by masks. We, we all wear a mask. We all, we all sort of present ourselves as, as a person. And then there are the other versions of us behind it. And your detective character is forced to look past the mask because that's what they're looking for. They're, so you, you get to explore the characters of the people you meet because he's or her is pushing past that first impression that you get. And, and I, I like that idea of people hiding things and, and, and that's the essence of detective fiction. As with any live recording, technical difficulties are a given. And unfortunately, the recording did cut out and we missed out the pertinent question regarding gender and representation of female versus male detectives in mystery novels. But don't worry, you just missed a little bit of RJ rambling on, but we'll get right back to it where the recording picked back up again. Keeping up Miss Marple and the yeah. Miss Marple Appreciation Society here. The thing about her is that everybody loves her. I mean, some people yeah. think like Sherlock Holmes is a bit of an arse and Poirot is a bit stuck up. Everybody loves Miss Marple. You go around, and even if you don't like her, she's going to give you tea and biscuits, yeah. and it, it's just awesome. But there's no pity in her no. at all. None. <laughs> no. Absolutely none. This is brilliant. Um, I think that 
if you just generalise grossly, and what is the point of talking about gender if not to generalise grossly? Um, if you generalise grossly, I think there are lots of different ways in which women are written when you come to kind of solve them. I mean, the classic trope is the woman who is tougher than the man. All the men walk around drinking beer and being sexist, but she's got her boots on, she's tough, she's going to solve it, she's going to talk in short sentences. He's dead. He's very dead. <laughs> and a tough woman. And we've all read those books and we've all seen those crime dramas. You know, it's kind of Helen Mirren walks into a room and talks and then leaves. Um, and usually, I, I, when, a, when you have a male character who's really tough, they also do the, I'm Philip Marlowe, I talk and I leave. But with the woman character, she usually is allowed to do this because she has deep unsung trauma. Like, that's one of the key things that always leaps out at me, that the woman can be tougher than the man, but preferably because she can't have a baby and therefore can't be motherly and therefore can't do the thing that women are supposed to be doing right now and that's made her tough. Or she's been a victim of violence or, you know, her brother disappeared when she was young and she was raised by bikers while eating bears. <laughs> <laughs> A woman isn't just allowed to be a badass detective who solves things. She has to. She, there has to be a reason why she's as good as the men. Um, and that that has always got me down a little bit, and still keeps on happening. And there's still a lot of use of violence as justification for why women behave the way they do in books, which makes me incredibly angry and tense. And even when you have a badass woman who's going to solve the mystery, made everything better, usually at the end of it, she'll probably still find love. <laughs> have, have you read the Kinsey Milhome books? A is for Alibi. And... No, I haven't. Because she's not like that. Oh, I like her. So yeah, she, she, from what I sometimes tell she's not really traumatized, and she, she doesn't. She's quite. She goes around talking to people. That's how she. So, but she can shoot people if she needs to. Which is quite... <laughs> so happy. Yeah, I do like people getting shot in my books or stabbed. There has to be death. Um, <laughs> but no, I just, I haven't got them brilliant. It's quite I, hard I boiled, totally but, but different. I love them. But is it possible to have a, a detective that isn't in some way pushed and driven and tortured? Because that's the drive that really gets Miss Marple accepted, yeah. obviously, who just does it in between her knitting and her baking. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think about Poirot and Sherlock Holmes, and they're, they're all kind of, of that era, they're very, very chilled. But yeah. nowadays you get, like you say, the... I don't think Sherlock's women. chilled. He's off his tits. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he? He's, always, he's caned out of his face nearly all the time. <laughs> he has some real problems, does Sherlock? He does, but he is, he's not full of anger, really. He's just kind of full of chill. Oh, I think opium. he's quite cross with Mycroft. Mm, yeah. there's, there's, there's problems there. But yeah, but, yeah. I think it is possible. Again, I hate to cite TV in a book's run, but Killing Eve recently was a perfectly acceptable example of a female solving a mystery who's got a job, and she does it, and she solves it, and when she's not solving it, she's at home making shepherd's pie. Like it's, it, I don't think you need to justify violence as a backstory. I don't think you need to have this kind of woman's journey from the virgin to the mother to the old hag to justify, well, particularly female characters. And I think a lot of male detectives, yes, there is the cliche of, you know, he drank too much beer, he drank too much whiskey, now he's in Edinburgh. There is that <laughs> recurring theme. <laughs> You can also not write that as a man. You can just write a man who's doing a job, and that's not questioned. Whereas I think even today, though, we're getting so much better, hurrah. Even today, if you write a woman who's just doing the job, people are like, oh, why? There's, I've been reading the Spencer books, 
um, Spencer for Hire, if anyone remembers, if you're old enough, you won't be Claire, because you're, you're older than my daughter. Um, <laughs> and they're kind of quite nice, because he's a hard-boiled detective, but there's, there's no trauma, he's actually quite happy. Um, uh, but he, he's quite open about the fact he's a detective, because actually he quite likes violence. Um, <laughs> but he likes doing good with it, uh, and that, that's kind of, and it, it's quite refreshing. I, they're like sweets. They're all the same, there's 40 of them. And, and I, I spent a year just reading nothing else. It is, it is difficult writing, I, I found this both writing and reading, writing about violence where women are involved. Again, a lot of the time you get this trope of she's a woman, she can fight, she's really good at fighting, and that's why her epic fight is against another woman. You're like, oh, but, 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 hold on a second. If I go to fight, I can fight men. Like, come on. But we still kind of pass even our violence in stories into women must fight women because they can't fight men. That would, well, a man hitting a woman, that would... Um, and so we end up with these almost two extremes. We end up with violence in these books being grotesque, abhorrent sexual violence against women because that gives us character. God help us all. Or we end up with, there was a fight. He hit her. She hit him back and he was dead. You're like, what, what happened to Stance of the Lobster? Like, what happened to our amazing action scene? And I still think we're actually quite uncomfortable talking about the relationship in our stories between women and violence. Could we just go back to Stance of the Lobster? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know those amazing fight sequences which kind of go, he flowed into Stance of the Upper Stoat. She parried with her famous River Meets Mountain. He went into Stance of the Lobster. She wasn't sure what to do about that. <laughs> Scenes. We've all read them, they're great. Yeah. It's this. <laughs> you had heard about that lobster somewhere before. <laughs> um, like when you come to, to talking about like genders approaching mysteries in different ways, like um, RJ, your stuff is kind of interesting in that way because Girton I guess maybe it's not a gender thing, maybe it's because of where he comes from and where he is in his life, but you know, he approaches it very differently than Merrilla does. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, an interesting juxtaposition. He, he basically, he's a rubbish detective. <laughs> um, that, something I like in a detective book is, when I'm reading it, is that feeling that I'm slightly ahead of the detective all the time. And I, I think that, that helps as well when you're winging it, because you can be writing thinking, oh, right. People know what's going on here, but that, that, that doesn't matter because it's deliberate, apparently. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I wanted to write that. And I also wanted, his master is called Merrill, and he refers to her as master because he, he was raised as a slave in a place where he never saw adult women. And it's just never occurred, it just never occurred to him that, that that could be a thing until he meets her. It's just so, whoa. Um, in the French translation, they changed it, his mistress, and I was like, no, 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 there were serious, literal reasons for this, and they went, yes, but if he calls a master, there are sexual overturns. It's like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you do what you want, French people. Um, <laughs> but, um, what, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to give you the feeling was that, um, first of all, she, she is... These are written after becoming a parent, and she is the avatar of that fierce parental love you feel for your child. And she is a good parent in that she stands back and lets him get on with it. And, and she watches, and she's there if, if he needs her, um, but she's not stopping him fucking everything up, which he, he does extremely well. Um, <laughs> but I kind of wanted the feeling that... Uh, He's getting on solving these mysteries, but probably at any moment she could step in and go, actually, this is what happened. Uh, um, and that's kind of the sort of tension I wanted, that actually she's the detective. 
and, and he's kind of learning his trade not very well. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and it also allows you to be a bit sloppy when you're writing if he's a terrible detective. <laughs> so how, when you're writing a mystery, how do you keep the mystery going without doing the, you know, J.J. Uh, Abrams lost thing where it's just, you know, just to keep people coming back to more, it just adds more mystery and adds more mystery until it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Like, how do you keep the mystery there? So something still yet unknown, but giving the reader enough to kind of encourage them to keep going and, and to want to find out what really happens in the end. You did hear us both say we didn't plan, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Surely you must in edits, though, go back and go, oh, there's not enough here, or, or do you not? No. You're just no. perfect. No, no. Straight away, you just get it, like, 100%. No, in edits, I do what Jenny, my editor, tells me to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably, for me, there's, there's kind of three tools you can use. And I do think of that as being a tool, because ultimately, mm. you know, solving a mystery is, can be a purpose unto itself, but there's also other things you can do with that. So I think, firstly, taking the example of Lost, you just stop. <laughs> just know when to stop. There comes a point where a trilogy should not actually be seven books long. There comes a point where you just need to back away and go, what else is interesting and different here? Um, the other thing that's kind of two things sort of tied together, actually, you kind of do to keep it going is you throw an opposition. There's usually a moment, not that far into a mystery, but reasonably far in, where suddenly a man turns up in a trench coat, generically in whatever genre this is, like someone will turn up and be a bit like, hey, you seem to be investigating this. I'm a mysterious, unknown, sinister power. I might get in your way. It's the lead child thing. NSA will rock up. You just know they're going to be dirty. There's, yeah. there, there is an opposition that is trying to get in your way. And they can throw up red herrings or they can just actively try and shoot you. And so forces that push back against you are a really powerful tool. The other thing you do is, is a mystery is not necessarily, you know, I just want to solve who died in the locked room. Yes, maybe that's your mystery, but maybe that then raises the question of, well, who built the palace the locked room was in, who's running the kingdom that owns the palace, that you up the ante. Each part that you solve then triggers a question about the next thing and the next thing. And so you escalate. So the problem, obviously, of escalating is you do end up doing lost and going, and they're all dead, but it's weird. Um, <laughs> spoiler. Um, like that, so I think escalating things so that actually the problem you thought you were solving is not actually the problem you want to solve is a really useful tool for keeping people engaged. The only danger again about that is that if someone picks up a book and it's been sold on the jacket and on the blurb as Carol wants to find out what happened to her sister, You're like, oh, this is a domestic story of pain and trauma. And within 50 pages, that story involves a mission to Mars. You can feel missold. So it's about, I think again, it's where plotting and planning comes in. It's about knowing very clearly what that story is you want to tell. So that when you do escalate, it's not a shock it actually makes sense within the style and the voice you've set for yourself. I, I kind of... Th this, this is just not helpful. <laughs> I, but it's but how I work. Yeah, anyway. I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I always think when I'm writing a book of a book as a diamond shape, and you start off at the bottom, at the bottom point, and then you go outwards, and you create all these little threads um, that are interesting mysteries, and they reach the widest point, and then you want to tie up and resolve those threads at the top point. And some of them might resolve further down, but that's, that's what I'm thinking in my book, and that's how I visualise a book. Where, where am I in this diamond? How far apart is everything? When, I, when I'm feeling a sense of panic that, oh my God, how am I going to make all these things work? That's when I know I'm in the middle of the diamond, and it's time to start 
heading towards the point. And then within that, that there's because there's two there's a mystery, and then there's the relationship between Girton and his master, which is not really a story, but it is the heart of the book. And then there are the moments just sort of dropped within it where you learn more about them, and that will drag you forward because you want to know what, why. Where did well, what created this relationship? Where did you come from? And, and so that there's, it doesn't all have to be mystery and, and diamonds. That's my my help. <laughs> very helpful. It is worth saying that with trilogies, particularly in fantasy and SF, you are very allowed. You are blissfully allowed. People love it, and that makes me so happy to finish on the last page with. But somewhere in the darkness of the galaxy, yeah. the ship answered the call, dot, dot, dot. You're like, oh, what's coming next? Another seven books? Oh, yeah. I love that. I mean, on that note, I mean, so like some mysteries, obviously, you don't have to answer everything, especially with speculative fiction, like especially your stuff, Claire, you know, you've got, you know, characters are trying to figure out what's happened to them and what's happening around them. How, I mean, where, at what point do you say, no, I don't want to explain everything and what, what's okay to leave still a mystery at the end and what, how do you balance the, the kind of enough of a payoff but also just keeping it a little bit of an enigma? <laughs> I personally am a big fan of leaving quite a lot unanswered, if not unanswered, then certainly don't explain. There's, there's often two ways of kind of writing a narrative style. There's the style of voice which goes, he walked down the street, hmm, he thought, this is a bad situation, I'd better tell Jenny about the problem with the bomb under the bed. <laughs> and that's, that's great, that gives you information, it tells you what's going on, that's fantastic. Um, I'm increasingly moved towards a style where he walked down the street, he felt bad. And I won't necessarily say why. I'm a big fan of trying to let people reach their own conclusions as to why someone feels this way, what's going on. I'm a big fan of getting to the end of a book and someone going, I'm going to kill you now, I don't feel the need to explain why, and I will have done my best to leave lots and lots of reasons throughout the book as to why this might happen, but by not saying it out loud, A, I feel that's truer to life. I feel a lot of what we do in life only do we realise five years later, oh, that's why I did that really stupid thing. Right, it makes sense now, I'm not who I thought I was. To be able to fluently articulate what you feel at the time is actually a bit of a challenge. Um, but I also think it's more interesting for a reader because ultimately, one of the most useful things I was ever told in life is that it doesn't matter what book you write, someone will always read their own thing anyway. Yeah. And I don't feel that it's my duty, or particularly my job, to tell you what to think. I think it's my duty to lay out information that is as true and self-consistent and as humanely consistent as I possibly can, and then let the reader reach their own conclusions. And if the conclusion they reach is, I'm not sure why that happened, what the hell is this writer doing? I've got craft problems, but that's also not an entirely unacceptable answer for me, because ultimately life is also messy. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I also, I suppose everyone's familiar with that when you're reading a book and you're thinking, oh, why is this thing? Why, why, why is this spaceship built out of dragons? Um, <laughs> and, and you kind of want to know that. And then I find nine times out of ten, if usually it's four or five books down the line, the author explains to me why the spaceship is built out of dragons. Actually, it's really disappointing. Um, and I didn't want to know. It was just did the whole spaceship. That was the exciting thing. Uh, and I don't really explain very much in this world. You're dropped in, things happen. It's the way it is in this world. He doesn't know, so I'm, I'm not going to tell you. 
Um, and, and someone said to me, someone said, oh, how does the magic work? You never really explain how the magic works. And I do know in my head how it works because I wrote it all down. Um, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> you can make up your own mind. That's the beautiful thing. It, it, a book is a skeleton and you, you hang your own life off it and populate it with, with things that are relevant to you and that makes it work in my head. <laughs> I might be wrong. <laughs> Skeletons and diamonds. Yeah. And ah, oh, magic goat sword. Ooh. And magic goat sword. Can we can we call this episode the magic goat sword? Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever we want. But we do have to wrap up, unfortunately. So I think uh, <laughs> on that note, we we just need to remember that like mysteries are a great way to get protagonists to do things, to, to give, create an interesting story, but uh, apparently we don't actually really need to plot them. Because <laughs> you do! Here's two examples! <laughs> they don't! <laughs> if you don't want to plot it, there's a great sort of genre of, of detectives who don't really know what they're doing, who just stumble around finding things out. That's the way to go, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you write it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should uh, write a mystery book with an RJ character as the... No one will believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you everyone for coming and listening to us ramble, or RJ ramble, and Claire be very articulate. Um, <laughs> Can we have a big round of applause for our amazing guests. didn't get to my watership down question. Oh, oh. 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 next time. Next time. <laughs> <laughs>